Howdy everyone, I'm Corbin Gregg. And I'm Kate Galliford. On this week's Women's History Month episode of Retrospect, we speak with Dr. Shiloh Whitney, philosophy professor at Fordham University, about feminist theory and advocacy. We also talk with members of Fordham Lincoln Center's Feminist Alliance about their work as a club and what steps Fordham still has to make in promoting gender equality on campus. This is Retrospect, the official podcast of the Fordham Observer. I'm joined now by members of the e-board for Fordham Lincoln Center's Feminist Alliance. Thank you both for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. So if we could just start off with the both of you introducing yourselves and maybe talking a little bit about what your position is on the e-board, that would be fantastic. Sure. So I'm Gabrielle Abrazaldo. I'm a sophomore and I'm currently the president of Feminist Alliance. And I'm Katrina. I'm a junior at FCLC and I'm treasurer of Feminist Alliance. So the Feminist Alliance went on a brief hiatus of sorts, starting in, I believe, the fall of 2019, and obviously has since been revived and now has a full e-board and is a wholly active club on campus again. Could you talk a little bit about what the process and the motivation was like for reviving the club? It really started when we got an email from, I believe it was USG that went out to the whole entire student population and Gabby and I were the only two that responded to it saying that we wanted to bring back Feminist Alliance. So we got everything running in spring 2020. And then all of a sudden, before we had our first meeting, we were sent home because of the pandemic. So we weren't really able to get the club up and running until fall. But I think that that was fine because having us sent home really gave us time to organize and really set up a plan for what we wanted the organization to look like and also let us build a community among the e-board members. So we became friends through that process, which made it a lot easier when the semester started in the fall for us to start looking for members and become like an active club. I personally feel like feminism as a term and as a social movement is just made up of so many different facets and goals and in general can mean so many different things to different people. So did you feel like it was necessary as a club and as an e-board to hone in on certain aspects of feminism that you found to be the most important or the most meaningful to the Fordham community? And if that's the case, how did and does that guide your work as a club? So I feel like feminism, often when people think of feminism, they think of white feminism. So they think of like feminism that's mostly focused on the cisgender white woman. And I think like as an e-board, that's something that we've really been trying to challenge. Firstly, like the e-board is consisted of all people, of women of course, specifically, we're all of Asian descent. And I'm a gender fluid person. And we're all kind of trying, we're kind of trying to expand that definition of feminism to be more inclusive, following like the teachings of like Kimberly Crenshaw trying to be more inclusive of different populations on campus and kind of instilling in students that feminism is not just something that white cis women should care about. It's something that everyone should care about because it's advocating for everyone's issues. It's It should be inclusive of people with disabilities, people of color, people in the LGBT community. And that's really what we're trying to advocate for on campus. Yeah, I think definitely in the beginning when we first started the club in spring. Uh, we definitely wanted to try to focus each semester on a certain topic. I believe in fall 2020, we wanted to focus on sexual assault and harassment on campus. But as time went on, we have become more fluid in what our idea of the club is. 
for what we want out of the club and what we see the community being. So we've definitely become a lot more fluid in our club events. Um, and as Gabby said, we've become more intersectional instead of trying to narrow it down on one specific topic. I think while we're on the topic of intersectionality, I do feel a need to address the very recent and very painful racist attacks on the Asian American community as a whole. But in just the last few days, we witnessed a really horrific attack specifically on Asian women. And a lot of the conversations I've seen in the days following the attacks in Georgia have been about the ways in which misogyny interacts and intersects with other forms of oppression like racism. So what's the importance of recognizing how all these different forms of hatred or bias interact with each other and kind of amplify each other? And why is it so important that we all take steps to ensure our feminism actually is intersectional and includes all people? I think that the recent attack in Atlanta really shows the importance of having feminism is intersectional in kind of helping people understand how different forms of oppression affect others. I mean, like, the case in Atlanta is very specifically targeted towards Asian women and kind of speaks to the historical colonial fetishization of Asian women and the image of Asian women within the model minority myth as submissive and docile and kind of the object of the white man's desire, which I think is like something that became very apparent in that attack that was racially motivated, the way that it's not just racist, but it's sexist too. And it's specifically targeted towards Asian women and, and the way that Asian women are seen by like the white cis man. So I think that like, it's something that's really important for us to like, try to understand the way that different forms of oppression kind of like influence and inform one another. And that's like the only way that we can really work towards dismantling these systems of oppression is by trying to understand them. For example, when people are fighting for like in the movement for Black lives, right? It's also intersectional because we have to also consider like how not just how Black people are being oppressed, but within the Black community, like who's subject to a lot of oppression, Black trans women um, and Black trans men like Nina Pop and Tony McDade. And I think that that's why like one of the reasons that it's really important for us to continue to try to work through these different forms of oppression that are just layering on top of each other. Because if one person just, if you just like look at it in a really like, like in a one dimensional way, it completely overlooks the different forms of oppression that are really at play there that are all like constantly interacting with one another. There is the other facet that these Asian women were sex workers, and that obviously adds a whole nother aspect onto why this was especially problematic. And as Gabby mentioned, like it goes into the whole idea that Asian American women are docile and submissive, and it gives another reason for cis white men to dominate over this marginalized community. And so then just to kind of shift back to a more Fordham-specific lens, because you obviously are a Fordham club, I imagine that as a coalition of feminist Fordham students, you all have a heightened awareness of exactly where Fordham still missteps when it comes to addressing gender inequality on campus. So what are some ways that Fordham as an institution and as a community and also as a student body, where do we still fall short in addressing gender inequality? And what are you doing as a club to kind of address or tackle those shortcomings? For one, I think that as a community, including faculty and students alike, we could do 
you can put a lot more effort into respecting people's pronouns. Like I have a few friends that have come forward and said they put their pronouns like in their name on Zoom and teachers still misgender them or students misgender them. And there's really nothing that's done about it or people are dead named. I think in the dean's list, one of my friend's friends was dead named, which is like, it's just not something that people should have to experience, especially after you come out with your name and your pronouns. It's just not something that people should constantly continue to have to like correct you on. And something that we do within the club is we try to encourage people to put their pronouns in their name and introduce themselves with their pronouns if they're if they're comfortable introducing themselves with their pronouns. Because that's another thing that I noticed too is like everyone's coming, I think, from a different place with like understanding their own gender identity. And I think that's something too that's um it's kind of like can be a pressure on people to like or someone to like state their pronouns or like it kind of puts people in that position, you know, if you're not like 100% certain, like what, what pronouns you'd like to be called by when you like ask someone instantly like their pronouns, they're put in that situation where they have to either lie about their pronouns that they feel comfortable with or like come out when they're not ready to. So something that I always try to do or like that we as an e-board try to do is when we ask people for their pronouns, we always tell them that it's optional for them to tell us their pronouns just in case anyone like doesn't want to tell us their pronouns or isn't sure if their pronouns yet because that's completely fine too. So that's like one thing that I, I noticed or that we're trying to work on. Yeah, I think it's especially disrespectful since we've transitioned onto a virtual learning platform that people are still misgendering others when their pronouns are right in their name. But in terms of other aspects of Fordham that fall short when it comes to gender inequality, there definitely is the issue of birth control and even the mention of it within Fordham that is just so taboo and hand in hand with that gender neutral bathrooms and the sexist and um homophobic guest policy is are definitely things that come to mind when we think about the shortcomings of Fordham. We as a club haven't really discussed that yet, but we would be open to talking about it more in the future if club members are interested. Fordham needs to do better in terms of those aspects, especially since we push we've been pushing back on it for so long. What sort of programming can we expect from the Feminist Alliance in the future? Do you have anything specific lined up for Women's History Month? Or if you'd like to talk about like when your general meeting schedule is, that sort of thing. We meet bi-weekly on Wednesdays at 5.30 p.m. Yeah, so in terms of looking forward to the future, we are planning on doing um, a Jeopardy night about feminist trivia. Our schedule keeps getting a little messed up because of midterms and everything. We've been trying to be very accommodating in terms of that. But we are planning on doing a trivia night soon about feminist uh, history. And then we are looking to do a collaboration with Active Minds regarding the mental health of AAPI community during the recent rise in hate crimes. Thank you both so much for coming on. It was really fantastic being able to talk with you. And I especially appreciate your openness with me and your willingness to tackle some really difficult topics tonight. So I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Up next, I speak with Dr. Shiloh Whitney about feminist theory, advocacy, and the way we should think about women's rights and the women's movement in the context of Women's History Month. I am now joined by Dr. Whitney, philosophy professor at Fordham University. Dr. Whitney, thank you so much for coming on Retrospect today. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Corbin. 
To start off, I just want to give a general definition of feminism when you're approaching feminism from like a theory or I guess philosophy perspective. There are a lot of ways that we colloquially define feminism, but from that theorist perspective, how should we be thinking about it in terms of maybe advocacy or theory making? Yeah, so I'll give you the definition of it that um, that I learned when I was in graduate school with a with a slight modification that, that updates it a little bit and makes it a little bit more uh, intersectionally friendly. But yeah, so the idea would be that you're a feminist or a feminist theory if you meet the following three necessary conditions. The first being a that you're committed to the view that gender actually functions as a hierarchy. In in some real and material way. And two, you're a feminist or a feminist theory if you're committed to the view that that's a bad thing. <laughs> you might be committed to the view that gender functions as a power difference, but be perfectly fine with that, in which case you're not a feminist uh, or a feminist theory. And three, in order to be a feminist or a feminist theory, you have to be committed to the view that it's possible to do something about that. That it's not inevitable, that it is contingent rather than necessary, that it's susceptible to change, that it's amenable to change. And you can imagine, you could be committed to the first two and not the third, right? You could think, yeah, gender functions is a power difference, and that's bad, but hey, there's nothing we can do about it. Just live with it. So yeah, in order to be a, a feminist or a feminist theory, if we're sort of breaking that down uh, in a philosophical way, those are the three you know necessary conditions I would give you, and I would think that if you meet those necessary conditions, that's sufficient for being a feminist from that theoretical perspective. So when we think about the first aspect of that, right, if we break down and say gender functions as that power difference, right, there's sometimes uh, some people could say that we outwardly express support for women's rights or celebrate something like Women's History Month, like right now, that there is less of a reason to either focus on advocacy because maybe that power difference is not functioning in the way that feminist theory would say it is. Uh, can you talk about some of the ways that feminist theorists conceive of the contemporary state of either women's rights or oppressions or equality in that world where we seem to outwardly express those kinds of views or support for women's rights? Yeah, so most people are explicitly committed to egalitarianism about gender. In lots of contemporary North American contexts, it's seen as, as gauche or sort of outdated or old-fashioned to be explicitly committed to the view that gender is a hierarchy. At least when it comes to the gender binary, masculinity and femininity, people are, are not so willing to explicitly avow in egalitarian views about that. Uh, you don't go to a lot of dinner parties where people are willing to straight up say, no, you know, men make more money than women and that's fine. That's just as it should be and sort of express those, those old fashioned views. I mean, I think there's lots of ways in which gender, when we talk about the complexities of it outside the binary, there's a lot more willingness to explicitly avow in egalitarian views. Transphobia is not as broadly unpopular <laughs> as explicit explicit sexism about women has become. And explicit sexism about women has become sort of culturally uh, not as okay. Although, you know, it's interesting the ways in which actually some fairly explicit misogynistic responses
responses do still have a cultural cachet. I think about the way in which people still will defend what they view as milder forms of sexual harassment in the workplace, right? Oh, you know, it's just jokes and surely we should all be able to let our hair down, right? So there, I think there are lots of fairly insidious ways that people see as trivial, but that actually don't add up to no amount of injury or damage that actually do add up to the broader sort of trivialization of women in the workplace and sort of not taking women seriously as professionals and kind of creating hostile environments that harm our career prospects, right? Like those little things aren't so little when they add up and become a broader environment. And, you know, and as I said, I think there are ways in which that gender difference functions as a hierarchy beyond just thinking within the binary that are quite serious and damaging, even at the level of creating an environment where like transphobic violence is even even acceptable and sort of tolerated in ways that I think, even when I don't find it surprising because I know that our world is a transphobic one that I still find really shocking. I think there are lots of ways in which we live in this odd environment. Uh, There are lots of people who avow explicitly egalitarian views, but then about gender, but then we as a society are not living up to those in all sorts of ways. I think one of the things that is complicated, even when we think about the people who avow explicitly egalitarian views, one of the ways is that we as a society are not living up to that even in a world that uh, that explicitly affirms equality that affirms even feminism to some extent there still can be active misogyny in those environments so you know it turns out that uh, even people who are committed to egalitarian views may actually enact punitive behaviors for women who step out of line. And um, and this is the concept of, of misogyny that Kate Mann gives such a fascinating and, and sort of trenchant account of and sort of brings all the resources of philosophy methodologically to bear to kind of elucidate in this really interesting way in that book, Down Girl. It's really interesting to think about the ways in which even people who avow egalitarian views will still as we can see happening at a statistical level, will still punish women for succeeding, will still be suspicious of women in leadership positions, will reward aggressive or sort of bullying behavior in men and and punish it in women. Uh, Kate Mann makes a, a really interesting case for the way that this sort of misogyny affected the outcome of the 2016 election and plays a role in lots of our behavior as a society in ways that function at the level of implicit attitudes, right? That function at the level of sort of unconscious biases, even in people who have genuine and sincere commitments to egalitarian beliefs. You kind of hinted at it a bit when you were talking about the experience of trans women um, or people who exist outside of like the gender binary. So how do theorists take into consideration the various experiences of women that result from like those differences in their identities? And what are some ways that theorists would say we overcome those differences or promote some level of equality or undoing of oppressions in that way, or otherwise acknowledging those differences and incorporate them into like a broader feminist advocacy? Historically, feminism has been very messy (laughs) in the sense of, you know, we women, that category 
as a social group is one that cuts across almost all of our other social group categories. In the uh, Simone de Beauvoir, this um, really germinal feminist philosopher and existentialist wrote in, in the introduction to the second sex that um, she says, women are dispersed among men and kind of extrapolating a little bit from that observation. You get the idea that gender is an intra-group differentiation. So in that sense, gender functions more like age than like race, in the sense that it's a difference that cuts across within other social groups. Um, not always, but often. Uh, and so that means that there are often women on both sides of various different struggles for social, you know, the, um, the labor movement, right? There are working class women, and then there are also very, very privileged and, and affluent upper class women. You know, similarly with race, uh, there are women who are in marginalized racial groups. Um, there are black women, there are indigenous women, uh, there are Latinx women, there are Asian women. There are also white women. Women can be invested in different ways in these other sorts of struggles for, for social justice or against it. And so, uh, and so there's always been this complication, right? Like what counts as a woman's issue? Right? What is it that we're going to come together and fight for? How are we going to function as a political force? Um, how are we going to function to have political will in the world as a group when we have, you know, perhaps the most diverse internal <laughs> differentiation that's possible in a human group? This is something that you might think, well, this just means it's not possible to have a women's movement, that it's not really ultimately possible to say, you know, what feminism is about. If we can't find the sort of basic common denominator that's this thing that all women share, this kind of core of sameness in our experience or in our identity, then it's not possible to have feminism, to have feminist advocacy, to have a women's movement. But actually, there's another way of looking at it, which is that actually it's that internal differentiation that is precisely our strength as a political body, that actually it's that internal diversity of women as a group that makes us a group who is capable of listening to each other and in inhabiting those differences and affirming them, uh, finding ways to come into solidarity with each other and function as the majority that we are. Right? This is the fascinating thing. Women are not an oppressed minority. Right? We're a subjugated majority. Uh, and we have this difficulty that we're constantly being divided against each other through all of the other sorts of axes of power difference that cut across us as a group. But that also means that it's possible for women to, to find a way to connect across those differences and come together, right, to bring the numbers to bear to support marginalized people. So, you know, the point that I'm making is basically the point that Audre Lorde makes 
in her speech on uh, women redefining difference. And I think that in the history of women's movements and women's activism, when there is almost any of these big movements that have made real progress and change in the world, the, the labor movement, uh, the anti-slavery movement, right? The movement for, for abolition. There are women driving these movements and there are women coming together in the germination of these movements. And I think there's a fascinating lesson there for us about what it can mean, uh, the kind of political potential, the kind of political will that's possible when women come together in ways that don't ignore those, those intersectional differences, but actually choose deliberately to engage with those differences and come together to support, the, to support marginalized people and to support the causes that we know are, uh, are important when we take stock of that full range of the situation for social justice and what it would take to live in a more just world in a way that actually engages those differences among women. You spoke to how these kind of more intersectional approaches will help to promote solidarity through like through that difference and recognizing those differences and building those connections out and emphasizing the fact that there's a wide range of experience and interested parties in feminist advocacy. Is there any worry that feminist advocates raise when either some groups do have more privileged positions than others? It is more common for white women to be elevated to positions of status within like uh, companies based on uh, like socially white women are in a more privileged position. Or even when we think about like Women's History Month and we promote images of women that have been successful, where it's like, look, all of these women have been successful. We have this egalitarian society somewhat so in that way, it's not an issue with all women. It's an issue with whatever group we want to define as the other or whatever group that we want to define as being deserving of those different privileges that some women have been able to achieve. Yeah, this is such an important danger. It's a, it's a political danger and a risk for justice um, that is within that sort of coalitional approach that I was describing before that that women have to have in order to have uh, in order to have a feminist movement that that genuinely seeks justice in the world that we have to engage with those differences among women and we have to engage with people who are most marginalized among us and uh, and not think narrowly about who we're representing. But of course, the, the issue is that, that we do have these divisions as a, as a group within women that matter materially. And, you know, speaking as a white woman, white women have um, historically, in, in various key junctures in the history of these kinds of movements, have really fallen for the incentives that are offered to us when we ally with patriarchal structures or with capitalist structures or with white supremacist structures, right? There's often something that we have to gain by uh, throwing other people under the bus, 
something that we have to gain by investing in being complicit with a degree of subjugation for ourselves, subjugation to uh, patriarchal kinship structures, to capitalist socioeconomic structures. And we, we have something to gain usually in those contexts because of, of white supremacy, because we get to ally ourselves with the most powerful, most powerfully positioned men around. And to the extent that we do that, to the extent that we're complicit with those things, even though we don't get everything either in that, we get a bit more. Uh, and we lose a bit less. And so, yeah, this is historically a, a huge issue. Um, and it's part of the reason why I think it's really important for white women in particular to, to listen to women of color in the context that we're a part of, to listen to trans women, to think about the way that we're positioned in the world, not just as women, <laughs> but to think about the way we're positioned in structures of race, to understand that the power difference that affects us is not only gender, <laughs> the power difference that we're positioned in is also racial, is also socioeconomic, and to have a certain amount of humility and a certain amount of robustness around our ability to hear criticism and to think about what it means to do our part in that struggle. I also think about another Audre Lorde piece in this. So Audre Lorde writes this piece that lots of people have come across called The Uses of Anger, Women Responding to Racism. And it's a really interesting piece for thinking through what it might mean for women to listen to each other, even when when there are conflicts among us, right? What does it mean as a white woman to be in a feminist context, listening to anger being expressed from women who are in a different kind of position than I am as a white woman, even when I am the target of that anger? And what does it mean to take that seriously and not get defensive and not get all up in my white fragility about that and to, to actually value that, as Lord says, as a source of knowledge, as a source of information, as a source of clarity, to resist the temptation to get defensive, all of the energy that gets wasted, right? all of the energy that can function as political will, if we listen to each other, that gets wasted if uh, those of us who have more privilege get all fragile about it. <laughs> Um, when we're sort of being called, called out on something. What would it mean to have a feminist movement that, that gives each other grace about these things and is determined to have the conversations that we need to have to really come together to work for, for justice in our world? And I think, yeah, that's gonna require different things of a white woman like me, of a cis woman like me, then it's going to require of a trans woman, of a black woman, of an indigenous woman. And so that's a key feature of how that coalitional movement would have to function. If you have any more final thoughts or more general thoughts about feminist advocacy or the state of feminist practice currently. I would just say that I've been honestly really moved by how earnestly and sincerely I have seen especially young people, you know, my students, <laughs> but also, you know, it, it has extended intergenerationally too. I have been really impressed at how earnestly and sincerely I have seen 
in the last few years, people take seriously the idea that gender does function as a power difference in our world and that that is a bad thing and that maybe there are things we can do about it. I feel like I see potential for real political will there. That's, that's exciting to me. You know, when I first started teaching as a university professor, I would often encounter the view that sort of, eh, you know, sexism, it's kind of over. We, we've sort of taken care of that. <laughs> what more is there to do? I haven't encountered that view in, you know, four years, three or four years, I'd say. And I think that's really interesting. I see a lot of really thoughtful and attentive consideration to I mean, how does gender function as a power difference in my world? How could we be engaging with that differently? And so I just want to say that I'm excited about that. And that for people who have started to think like that, who maybe haven't before, I want to celebrate that and encourage that. I think it's interesting what you said before about how in Women's History Month, you know, when we see the image of what that, what women's history looks like, you know, we often see, for instance, white women overrepresented or white women's leadership overrepresented. And I think that's well worth noticing and questioning. But I also think that it's possible to think about, for all of us to think about the, the kinds of service that we can give to social justice causes. You know, I think that it's possible to, when you find yourself in an often uncomfortable position of being the person who, because of your cisness or because of your whiteness, you might be a person who will be listened to or have more sway, have more influence or status than someone else who you know probably should be heard louder. I think I want to encourage people in that position to really think about what you're doing, not as leadership, but as service. And for all of us to think about the, what are the gifts that we can give, right? What is the service that we can offer to a broader coalitional movement that works to represent the most marginalized people among us? Um, and I see people thinking that way more now than I have before too. And I just really, I want to celebrate that. And I want to say more, more of that. <laughs> Do more of that. That's excellent. Well, Dr. Whitney, thank you so much for coming on Retro today. It was great to get this more theory-based perspective and idea of feminist advocacy that I think is really important to also talk about in Women's History Month rather than just like we spoke about before, that outward celebration kind of tone that I think a lot of people will take with it. So thank you so much for coming on today and helping give that perspective. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored and delighted to be here. This has been Retrospect. Special thanks to Dr. Whitney, Gabby Abrazaldo, and Katrina Shea for coming on the show today. As always, I'm Kate Galliford. And I'm Corbin Gregg. Take care. Stay healthy, and we'll be back again next week.